Hey, thank you for joining us today. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. If you're finding any value of this podcast, please do share it and leave a review. And also, nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. And this is not a patient-doctor relationship. It is really just a couple of people sitting around, or maybe just myself, discussing difficult topics related to aging parents. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. I have with us today a special guest, Esther Greenhouse. We met a couple of months ago at a conference called Environments for Aging. And when she told me about her passions and her background and what she gets to do every day, I was absolutely developing a design crush. Esther doesn't know this yet. On what she does and how she does it. And one of the things I took away from that conference is that there are true blue academics out there that just really love this topic, that really want um, to push the topic of how we take care of aging persons and their environments um, all the way, not just from the design, but just how it impacts their lives and their function. And I'm just so excited to have you, have you here today, Esther. Thank you for being here. Rebecca, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your important podcast. I really enjoyed meeting you as well at the Environments for Aging conference. Um, I felt a connection to you right away, even before we met, based on your comments. And I thought, who is this woman? What does she do? I'd like to get to know her. So I'm so glad that you reached out to me and that we've connected. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm glad we're here. And I remember one of the first things we talked about was having you come on the podcast. I think you have so much to share. Uh, so just for, for context, today we're going to focus on um, Esther's professional experience and a lot of the things that she's learned, and she's going to share them with you here today. But before we dive into that, Esther, can you just give everybody an idea of what kind of work you do? What's the term for it? How did you arrive at that? Yes. So I am an environmental gerontologist and a built environment strategist. Um, I'm now shortening that to refer to myself as a gyro strategist. Being an environmental gerontologist means that I am dedicated to improving the lives of older adults via the built environment. And that doesn't mean that I'm solely working in um, design for older adults. Um, part of my work is collaborating with designers and architects, collaborating with senior living providers to inform the design of spaces that will be used by older adults to enable them to thrive. Um, but in addition, there's so much more that goes into shaping the lives of older adults through built environments. There's policy, there are um, zoning ordinances, building codes. Um, I've been involved in creating initiatives like AARP's Equity by Design, which is um, an initiative for the built environment sector to help them create enabling and equitable multi-generational housing and communities. Okay, so go back to what kind of communities these are equitable 
equitable and enabling. So enabling. Okay. Can you talk yes. more about what that means? Yes. Yes. So we all know the term equity. Um, the enabling comes from my enabling design approach, which I created as a response and a guide to changing the discriminatory status quo of our housing and our built environments. So there are three parts to the enabling design approach. The first is the concept of environmental fit and press. And environmental fit and press comes from the field of environmental psychology. And when you distill it to its essence, it's very simple and it's very powerful. Essentially, when there's good fit between a person and their environment, they can be independent. And that doesn't mean that they may not need any assistance um, from other people. They may not, they may need to use some assistive devices, but with the design of the environment, with the protocol of care, uh, whether it's formal or informal, they can be as independent as possible. Unfortunately, when you have poor fit between a person and their environment, that person is subjected to a form of stress called environmental press. So actually, the greater the gap between what my abilities are and what the built environment asks of me, the more my abilities are pushed to an artificially lower level. So it makes me unnecessarily frail and dependent. And where we see that most is with older adults. Now, some people say, okay, with older adults, you can move to specialized housing. Um, but as you well know, Rebecca, um, that doesn't work for everybody. In fact, over 90% of older adults do not live in senior housing. So we really need to then look at the second pillar, which is the fact that our building codes and conventions create housing and other environments that are ideal for the average height male with high physical, sensory, and cognitive abilities. And so what that really means is that we've built a society that is great for the average height male between the ages of 20 and 40. And then everyone else has to adapt. Now, I'm five foot one. I have two visual processing disorders. I have sensory processing disorder. I am always experiencing some degree of environmental press. So not all of this is age related. So the third pillar of the enabling design approach is after looking at the world through the lens of environmental fit and press and the disabling and narrowly designed status quo, what is the response? We need to look at our policies, our programs, and our protocols. We need to look at returns on investments and cost-benefit analyses to make sure that we're creating environments that enable people to thrive across the lifespan and across the ability span.
Thank you so much. That's a very thorough explanation. That's going to set us up very well for a lot more questions I have for you. Um, so the first question I have is just in general, this is a very you know, specific topic, but how does somebody get into uh, environmental gerontology? Like how is that an academic? What's the the after after high school, what does that look like getting in to do something like what you get to do? Well, I'm glad you asked how you become an environmental gerontologist because there are very few of us and clearly uh, with the exponential growth of the aging population, we need more. So um, there are a variety of ways that one can pursue this. One can um, study design uh, as an undergraduate, they can study psychology and then, oh, and then pursue a master's degree in a related field. So for example, in my case, I studied interior design. Um, it was, uh, it is part of a program at Cornell University called Design and Environmental Analysis. And um, I think now they've changed the name to the, of the department to um, human-centered design. But all the, majors within that program were rooted in environmental psychology research. So while I was studying design and learning to actually be a designer in design studios in the afternoon, in the mornings, I was taking environmental psychology classes to be informed. Um, to understand how the built environment affects people and why we don't design randomly, but we seek information both from research as well as from um, the people who will be using the places we design. In my case, while I was studying design and environmental psychology as an undergraduate, the college developed a certificate program in gerontology. And I was like, this is terrific. I was very interested in um, how the built environment specifically impacts older adults. And here was this minor that I could pursue, which I did. And um, after graduation, I went and worked at an architecture and engineering firm for a couple of years. And I was very unhappy because we were not doing any projects related to older adults. And um, I remember approaching one of the principals of the firm and saying, I know I'm in my early 20s and I don't know a lot about going out and getting a client and running a project. But I know that environments for older adults is the next big trend, the next big unmet need. And I'm one of few people in the country who has expertise in design for older adults. So if you're interested, we can pursue that. You know, I'd love to be part of, of growing the firm in that direction. And um, it, I was uh, ignored um, and it was really fascinating. I then um, 
left that firm after a couple of years and went back to design and environmental analysis at Cornell and specifically pursued a master's in applied research in environmental psychology. And um, with that, I looked at um, reducing the visual deficits that occur with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias and the intersection between um, lighting and those visual deficits creating a form of environmental press and how you can thoughtfully use lighting to reduce those issues. So that was my path for becoming an environmental gerontologist. Wow, I, I honestly didn't know that even existed till I met you and thank you so much for talking about that. It seems like we need you know, hundreds more of those knowing the, the demographic shift that we're about to, or we're seeing, right? About to see, but we're seeing. Yeah. Um, since you've been involved in this for, it sounds like, you know, since your early 20s, what are the three most encouraging trends that you see sitting at your perch right now? Okay, so first I'll say that I actually haven't been involved with this since my early 20s. This actually has been um, a lifelong interest of mine because I mentioned that I have sensory processing disorder and two visual processing disorders. Um, I'm very sensitive to light. So you can see photos of me as a child reading um, by a lamp in my room and wearing a brimmed hat because I'm trying to shield myself from too much light. So I've always been very aware about the built environment. Um, there's also a really nice video on the homepage of my website, which talks about my mission and what led me to this work. And that really began when I was about five years old and um, my maternal grandmother who lived with us was um, suffering from rheumatoid arthritis. And as it progressed and she needed to use a walker, um, she found she couldn't get into the bathroom with the walker because the doorway was too narrow. Um, and before long, she needed to move to a skilled nursing facility because this was the early seventies and most people didn't do home modifications to enable someone to age in place. Um, and so that experience and then visiting her regularly until she passed away um, at the skilled nursing facility, it was um, it was really eye-opening to me. So the some of the trends that I'm seeing, um, so I'm very excited about um, trends related to aging in place. I'll give you some context. Not only is it really meaningful to me because of my grandmother's experience, um, it's also really meaningful to me because I um, collaborated with my husband who was a custom home builder mm -hmm. to design and build a house for my mother that would enable her to retain as much of her physical and financial independence as possible. And we succeeded. 
we were able to delay her moving to a facility by five to seven years. And through simple features um, like installing a bidet seat, which she, she used regularly, we estimate that that saved her probably about $30,000 over seven years because she was able to have one less aid visit per week for showering. Not to mention the probably half a million dollars or more that the family saved and the government saved by keeping her at home. So the, the trends that I'm seeing related to aging in place are um, one um, that senior living providers are looking at shifting from the model of a continuum of care that requires a person to move to different units and have different homes, different room, a different apartment as their needs for care increase. That's the, the typical model. So whether a person lives in um, a continuing care retirement community where there are various levels of care on one campus. Esther, um, if I can interject um, yes, to my <clears throat> loyal tribe of listeners for this podcast, what Esther's talking about, if you refer back to episode two, when we interviewed Renee about her mother's living situation in Florida, that's those continuing care communities. And that is where you enter usually in an independent living situation. And then as your needs increase, then they move you into an assisted living or a skilled nursing type uh, setting. And uh, that's the trend that Esther is talking about that, that either it could be in one room, like the room itself could just change to meet the needs of the person. Um, and the idea would be that they're not having to relocate at a time when they're also experiencing some decline. Is it, do I have that right, Esther? Right. So actually what I was going to say, in addition to the continuing care retirement community known as the CCRC, you also have people moving to different levels of care and different environments from facility to facility. So for example, my mother lived the last few months of her life in an assisted living facility and had her needs progressed enough, she would have had to leave there entirely and move to a new facility, a skilled nursing facility. So that's the old model. But exactly what I was getting at was, I'm so excited by this new trend of looking at how can we have a, a person move into a, a room, a, an apartment that will be their home until they pass away. And any level of care they need can be provided in that room. So that's really meaningful to me because first of all, common sense dictates that if you, have to make a change that you're not happy with in terms of your home, um, it's going to be challenging. But we also have research to support that that can be really devastating for older adults. And in fact, it can, um, it can hasten their deaths. 
So we really want to respect people and make sure that they feel at home and provide the levels of care. Um, another trend that I'm seeing um, is serving older adults kind of in the opposite direction. It's the trend for senior living providers to provide um, what they call senior living services or senior living without walls um, out into the community. As you and I have talked about, um, over 90% of older adults are not aging in um, specialized housing in a dedicated senior facility. And their needs are not being successfully met. So they're, they, and that's happening for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason is that we have not prepared for the exponential growth in older adults and um, the fact that fewer family caregivers really are in a great position to deliver care, um, but many of them are doing it anyway. Um, we also have issues that the design of our housing and our communities makes the provision of care harder. So it makes it harder for uh, an assistant, um, such as a, a home health aide or a family member to help somebody use the bathroom. I mean, even, even if I'm there to help my grandmother when she's using a walker, though that door is still too narrow. And so it's gonna be challenging for two of us to get through together. But the other thing to think about is the plight of home health aides um, and the plight of certified nurse, nurses aides who are working in facilities. This population is primarily made up of women. Um, they tend to be the primary breadwinner for their families. Um, they're often what we call sandwich generation where they're providing care for their own children um, as well as for an elder in their family. Um, they might even be providing care for a grandchild. Um, and they're trying to get to senior living facilities, which by the typical way that our zoning ordinance is set up and our land is used in this country, um, it's, it's often very difficult to access those locations unless you have a car. Um, they are not in um, downtown centers or nodes um, of community design. The other issue is how we have typically set up our towns um, and cities where the focus has been to get people into the city center, into the downtown center uh, to, to do work and be there from eight to five or nine to five and then commute back out. Well, if I'm an aide 
and I'm living in an urban environment and I need to get out to a more rural environment or a suburban environment to take care of an older adult who's attempting to age in place, how am I gonna do so? Because often the trains and buses are designed for me, people to be commuting in the other direction. Often this population, these women are trying to commute against the tide. And um, we just don't have appropriate, uh, in many cases, we don't have appropriate transportation systems that make that a reality. That's working against us. So the other thing that I think we're starting to see, well, the other trend that I see is much more discussion about aging in place, but I always encourage people to not focus on aging in place, but successful aging in place. Because so many people are just aging in place by default, and they don't realize how the design of their home is working against them. It's exacerbating their decline and creates what I call forced frailty. And that is preventable by good design that respects people's needs across the lifespan. And I would, I think one of the things, one of the challenges about that is the age of the homes themselves. So even if we were able to turn the tide and all the new uh, track housing going up here kind of was was had a wider doorway or things like that, I'm I'm wondering the implications of the current or pending crisis with the demographic shift is for people staying in their home, those homes may be 50, 60, 70 years old and the affordability of going back and doing, and you're married to a, a, a builder, right? And so, and that's even changed the last several years. Um, and, and we don't really incentivize people or assist them in renovating, although it would be cost beneficial to the greater population if we were able to keep people in their homes. An example of that would be the Canadians coming out and, and allowing tax rebates or, or tax deductions for aging in place type renovations. Have you heard of any, I, I've heard there might be some similar legislation here in the United States. It's not live yet. I don't, I don't know yes. where it's stuck right now, but do you have any updates on that? Yes, so I encourage everyone to visit lewistenenbaum.com and I can give you some links to uh, post on your website. Um, Lewis Tenenbaum um, has been a incredible advocate for successful aging in place for via appropriately designed housing. Um, he is a former builder and um, like me, Lewis uh, taught the Certified Aging in Place Specialist Program run by the National Association of Home Builders. And um, he has put forth um, a, a bill to provide um, a tax break for people to, when they make, they invest in their housing and they make home modifications. So I'm not going to speak to that, but I will share the information and your listeners can um, look into that. I'd like to chat a little bit. I'm always interested in, in big picture economics as well. And from my uh, point of view, maybe more on the healthcare side, 
is the way that we deal with the aging in place problem. So for people that have resources, it's not a problem. Um, like all the, you know, the settings we were just mentioning, you're not going into an independent living or a private assisted living facility without somewhere around six to $8,000 a month. Um, and if you're not working, then you're assuming that that's either a pension or that's a retirement that's doing really well, or you have some other pot of money. Um, and, and not knowing for most people exactly how long they're going to live. And you're looking at, say, you're 75 entering an assisted living, and you think I could live five more years or 25 more years. That can be a hard decision, right? Because it might not be, um, you know, or your needs might change or your finances might change. But if we'll just take that population uh, and put them on the shelf and look at the other people that um, maybe don't have the resources to, to go there or personally don't want to go there, the way that this is handled by the government is a couple of different ways. So if you, if you stay in your home, there are home health services that are designed to help extend some healthcare to into the home setting for like wound uh, dressing changes, sometimes IV antibiotics, things like that. So to help keep you in your home versus being in a nursing facility. But if push comes to shove and somebody is unsafe to live in their home and has to go into a nursing facility, for the, for the vast majority of people, that's going to be paid for by Medicaid, which is a state-funded and kind of hybrid federally funded program that you can only, only be eligible for once you have less than $2,000 to your name, period. And so there's usually a spend down period, say you had $15,000 and you spend that down, get below $2,000, and then you're eligible for Medicaid, which will then fund um, not necessarily a selective place, some some places offer Medicaid beds, some don't, and then you end up living um, off of a state-funded uh, retire, I don't know how to say that, a state-funded um, resource that's going to give you housing. Um, and But because that comes out of what looks like a healthcare budget, so Medicaid is considered healthcare-colored money and not residential-colored money, we're mm -hmm. almost doing this weird shuffling on like if we had all the money and laid out on the table we're calling it healthcare spending because they have to be qualified to need some sort of nursing um oversight in order to be in these in these settings uh so it's coming out of a healthcare budget but it's really indirectly solving what was initially a housing problem does that sound right it's an excellent explanation yes um, I, like many people, find um, uh, the specifics of Medicaid um, and Medicare um, overwhelming. Um, but yes, it's true. And the other thing that's really important is if we're looking at it in terms of healthcare spending, which is uh, not unreasonable, there's a very easy shift we can make. Um, I remember, I think it was when I was a teenager in the 80s, and we started to move um, with insurance to, um, to preventative care insurance programs. And that's exactly what we can do with Medicaid spending. We just need to recognize that because we are designing 
our housing, our transportation systems, our public places, our workplaces for a small subset of the population that average height male between the ages of 20 and 40 um, and the impact that that has over time as we age and how it can make people more frail and make people need more long-term care, we can easily just shift the view and say, how do we prevent that? What, what are the variables? And really the built environment is viewed as one of the social determinants of health, um, which are areas uh, or rather variables that are considered in public health, in also in, in healthcare fields like um, um, city and regional planning. So we know this makes a difference. That's the reason that I do the work I do. In my, my number one goal is to enable people to maintain their physical and secondarily financial independence as they age. I want people to be able to thrive. If, if we were talking uh, to somebody who is asking for three or four lower budget modifications that you see uh, mm -hmm. the greatest like pound per dollar, I don't know how to say it, the greatest punch for the amount of money you're spending. Yeah. And you've seen this, people be able to make these modifications. What would those be? That's that's a, a great question. I love that. Um, so it's important to recognize that not everyone can build a custom home like my mom did or um, completely renovate a house. Before I get into some low-hanging fruit of easy renovations, I also want to remind people that the best time to change the design of your home to be enabling across the lifespan is before you're already impacted. And so often I meet people, when my husband was a builder, he had clients who did this. I, I know people who are in the aging space, they are undertaking a renovation, they're updating their kitchen, they're um, finally, uh, creating a master suite with a beautiful bathroom ensuite, and they are not putting in features that will enable them to successfully age in place. So that's one thing to keep in mind that it doesn't typically cost more. You just have to be aware and think about it. But then when we look at specific features, I'm a big fan of Ibdesi. So my mother had requested when we built her house, she wanted a bidet seat. I think the bidet seat we bought for her was maybe about $500. And then what was needed was um, a dedicated outlet, which in this case, my husband installed, but let's say you hire um, an electrician to install that, you're looking at approximately a $1,000 investment. 
because my mother used the bidet seat every time she toileted, she was able to have one less shower a week. Either I showered her or an aide showered her. And with the cost of an aid visit being approximately $100 a visit, because it's um, typically about $25 to $30 per hour. Usually there's a minimum of a three-hour shift. So every less shower she could have saved her $100. And when you add that up over weeks and months and years, over a seven year period when she needed assistance with bathing, we calculate that she saved over $30,000 for that. So to have a $3,000 return on investment. And, and for people that don't know, so a bidet seat is, there's a lot of different versions of them, but it's usually an attachment to an existing toilet that will help clean your bottom without having to be able to reach your bottom or even uh, without toilet paper. So it's a combination of water and followed by air to dry uh, so that people that are either weak or maybe because of their body, um, the way their body is, they just can't get um, to do that hygiene. What that saves them, if uh, what that saves them in terms of caregiving, if somebody would not have to come and do perform personal hygiene for them. Um, and so there's a good privacy gain from that. There's obviously a, a great independence of that. There's a good health outcome because having a, a clean bottom, you're talking about a population very prone to urinary tract infections, to GI infections as well. Maybe they have poor visual issues and maybe they can't confirm that they've, they've cleaned really well. So that's another option. I will say that there are some versions of bidets that don't require an outlet. They just have less features. They're available on Amazon. I would only know this because I have a son who's very clean and requested a bidet for his birthday, which is hilarious. Um, and uh, we had that installed in the in, in his bathroom recently. And um, so his future spouse, you are welcome. I have a very clean eight-year-old boy um, that I think will grow into a person that loves to be clean. So um, so that is that if you're wondering yourself, you know, what what is a bidet? In some cultures, they're standard. They're across, uh, especially if you go places like Japan, um, you won't use a restroom that doesn't have a bidet. Um, here in the United States, it's still kind of a funny word. It's still a funny concept. But as far as what Esther is describing, something easy that can be done um, and added without existing uh, massive renovation. So what yeah. are a few other things that kind of hit your brain as, as easy? Yes. So uh, another issue is wider doorways. So to undertake um, a renovation of actually widening a doorway and installing a new door, um, you know, the, the old, old data, pre-pandemic data that I have says that you should budget 800 to about $1,500 per doorway to widen um, the door. And when you think about it, um, why would it be so costly? Well, the first thing is you need to buy an entirely new door. 
Um, so that will run you a couple of hundred dollars, give or take, depending on the style. Um, the other issues are you'll often have to patch the flooring. Um, you may have to move the electrical um, outlet and light switch that are close to the door aside to make for a wider opening. So there's, there's quite a bit of work involved in that. Now, the first thing I'll say is to spend $1,500 to have a wider doorway that enables you to get into the bathroom and remain in your home or live, for example, with your adult children in their home is a one-time investment versus $3,500, $8,500 a month to live in assisted living. So it's very important to do a cost-benefit analysis. The other thing is I really encourage people, if they're building a new home or doing any renovations on their home, um, to think about doing making wider doorways from the get-go. Um, on new construction, sometimes the cost of a wider doorway is zero. Um, and often it's as little as $20 per door. But other things that can be done are um, you can remove the existing hinges and put on hinges that are um, referred to as swing away hinges. So they allow the door to swing out of the way and you can often pick up um, an inch or sometimes maybe up to two inches with, with replacing the hinges. Other things that are important modifications that you can make are thinking about the lighting in your home. It's really important to have lighting that's respectful of age-related changes. And um, again, this is something for me that I can really relate to because I've always been very sensitive to light and very sensitive to glare. So, um, and specifically, I um, had to have an operation on one of my eyes two years ago. And because of that surgery, cutting into the lens of my eye, I was told, you're going to develop a cataract. And I have. So now um, at age 53, um, I have a cataract in one eye, and it's helping me understand um, older adult vision that much more. So what does that translate to, into in reality? One is um, a terrible, terrible, terrible trend in lighting is clear bulbs with exposed filaments. Um, I have had a very hard time with that. Um, and, and I know um, a lot of older people do. Other people who are very sensitive to light, um, for example, people who are on the autistic spectrum, um, this, this just doesn't work. So do not have any light fixtures in your home that have um, clear glass um, and an exposed filament. Going further, I really recommend that all lighting have um, either a milky white diffuser, which is the, the shell, so to speak, around a light bulb, um, or a lampshade. 
you don't want to see the light source uh, because glare can be disabling. Another thing you want to do is to have different options for lighting within a space. So you want to be able to have um, a lot of light or very low levels of light, maybe at night, but that still help you find your way. Um, and there are different ways to do that. You can install um, uh, night lights that plug into outlets that just come on uh, when the light levels are low and they illuminate your path. Other things to think about with lighting is also the amount of light you're getting from the exterior. Um, a really bright window can have um, be over 300 foot candles of light, um, which can create uh, intense glare. And related to this, you want to think about the other surfaces in the room. So if you have flooring that's shiny when that sunlight comes in or the light, the artificial light in the room bounces off of it, it's going to create hot spots of glare. And that can be disabling by causing strain on the visual system and sometimes even pain, but it also um, causes problems because it impacts how you perceive that floor. Um, it can make the floor appear uneven, for example, and then you change your gait unnecessarily and you're more likely to slip and fall. Thank you for sharing those. Yeah, I think lighting is something that, um, you know, fairly easy to change out or rearrange. Buying a floor lamp, right, that's not out too, too far out of most people's budget if that's what's going to be best for that room. And I want to reassure people, I, as, as many of you know, design is my, my side passion as well. So I'll, I'll do future podcasts. Hopefully Esther will come back and speak with us again about specifically about some more aging in place uh, design type recommendations. So um, Esther, from, from where you sit um, in the industry that you're in right now, um, can you give anybody just an idea of if they are an adult child wanting to help support an aging parent, you've mentioned um, trying to do some renovations, maybe not go crazy, but some things you can do ahead of time, um, trying to think about the financial aspects of it, and I know you yourself have been somebody that supported a mother and then, as you mentioned, a grandmother. Can you think of any advice you would give to them or lessons learned if I'm sitting in that situation and wondering how I could pick the brain of an environmental gerontologist, like what they would tell me? Yes. So a couple of things. One is I'll share some links to um, uh, some articles. There's an article that um, I wrote for um, the Certified Senior Advisors um, Association, specifically on leveraging home design features to um, enable physical and financial independence as part of a retirement strategy. So that would be one of the key things is look at your home and where you're going to live as part of your retirement strategy. A lot of people are really uncomfortable with having conversations about how what design features they might need to support them as they age. I remember um, 
when I had um, finished my master's, my mom was in her um, mid to late 60s and she had recently suffered a minor heart attack. And I said, okay, let's make a plan. You know, your, your mother had to move to a nursing home, which you don't want to do. Let's plan out different scenarios and prepare. And her response was, I don't have one foot in the grave yet. Hmm, and that right. was the end of the, that was the end of the discussion until she was 80 and, um, she had a slight fall and that was a wake up call to her. So she I'm going to, I am totally in love with this idea of aging in place design as part of a truly comprehensive retirement plan. Um, and that's cost avoidance, right? And then it's also um, preservation of function and quality of life. Like, I don't know that a lot of people go into retirement saying, oh, I hope I would have to move someday. And I think that the best for most families, right, is to, to really find environments that promote healthy aging in place as much as possible, fall prevention, kind of the big, the big ones that are up there. And I'm not, I think we do a lot of hand-wringing about um, avoiding the topic. And then also mm -hmm. when the topic comes up, it being like a, like a, a huge tsunami wave that hits us all at one time. And then we're not making our best decisions. Maybe we're now really financially stressed because somebody's been in the hospital. And so I, I love this idea of, of the, maybe a, a cultural shift that you've worked so hard for your retirement. Um, and again, I'll tie this back to the podcast I did uh, right before Father's Day with my dad, talking about how he's kind of modified his home, being proactive, trying to stay there, but also because that's part of his retirement plan. Um, and, and maybe using that wedge of retirement planning as a way to have a difficult conversation about preserving their retirement, preserving everything they've worked for, um, and not making it like, hey, <laughs> you're you're up next, right? You're about to, <laughs> to to jump to the other world, right? Um, it's more about, you know, I, that's your, you know, what if this was a routine part of that financial conversation with the financial planner or a banker yes. or or whomever, because we get so siloed, right? And um, I'll share a story, and I haven't shared it on the podcast yet, but when I first started getting interested in design several years ago, um, not knowing any better, I just started randomly calling designers and architects like a Eureka, like, oh, this is such an important thing. I think people should, um, you know, care about this <laughs> and worry about it. And and I was very, very naive. And I remember an architect actually went far enough to invite me to their facility. Or, I'm sorry, an architect went far enough to invite me to sit down with his team and I did this PowerPoint presentation very boldly talking about a lot of these topics. And at the end of the day, I had really not understood the architect business model um, and sitting down with a potential client and talking to them about aging and all of their health needs was not necessarily something they wanted. And um, it was a young architect that pulled me aside as I was about to leave. And she said, I, I, I don't want to ask them because I feel like I'll lose the business. And she had described um, just the week before a client having a difficult time ascending the five stairs it took to get into her office and that they looked like they might have some mobility issues and then sitting down and planning their dream home. And she said, I, I knew the entire time that they should be thinking about aging in place. We should be talking about doorways, but I was so terrified 
in this competitive market to try to get people's, you know, business that if I had just brought it up that maybe they'd walk right out the door. And it was, you know, it was hard to hear for me in that moment. And I totally understood it. And I was so glad somebody pulled me aside and said that because I had not quite understood some of the challenges. Like you and I talk as if it's common sense and everybody would do this. Um, but there's aesthetic challenges to it. There is a worry about the home feeling institutionalized um, for designers, which if you don't know that industry is an extremely crowded and competitive industry itself. And so that's when I started thinking more broadly about what I was going to do, which was really focus on educating the consumer and supporting the consumer to make these decisions, because that was much more balanced in the way that the, the, the finances flow in that industry is a consumer would come to an architect or designer and say, I want to age in place. I need you to do this. And they can totally do it, right? They can get certifications in it. They can, um, there's lots and lots of resources out there, but I don't think people understand that it's, it's still a taboo topic. Um, and as comfortably as we're talking about it here today, that is not normal um, in those design settings. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes, yes. Um... <clears throat> I'm glad at, that you had that experience and um, that that architect was kind enough to share her experiences with you. Um, it's amazing because that architect also could have not talked about aging and ability at all and could have framed this in the advantages of having wider doorways that when you're walking through carrying a laundry basket, um, when you're moving furniture, just moving throughout the space, those few inches make a world of difference. My husband and I will never forget when my mom's new house was done and the movers uh, arrived and they had lots of issues moving her stuff up unrelated to my mother, but she lived in a condo um, where, or maybe it was a co-op where there were restrictions on what hours of the day they could be at the building, taking her things out. Um, then they had difficulties with their trucks and it was a very long trip. It was a five hour drive. They finally arrived at her house at nine o'clock at night we insisted they ate the dinner that we had got for them. And then they walked into the house, it's 10 o'clock at night, they're utterly exhausted. And they're like, oh my gosh, thank goodness for these wider doorways and no steps and no transitions. So, you know, enough, that's another key feature, having at least one zero step entry to the house and putting in a shower that's a no-step shower. And in a lot of circles, no-step showers are not called no-step showers for aging in place. They're called spa showers. And the ease and luxury of having the tile floor and no, no transition, no grade change is viewed as something that's luxurious. So a lot of this is the framing. We do talk in terms of beauty and appearances about uh, 
anti-aging and um, retaining your youthful look. And that really doesn't translate. It's not working to translate that well into the home environment. Um, and that really ties into a huge issue, uh, which is the shame of aging. And one of the components of my mission is to help people understand that aging is a normal process. It can be exacerbated by disease. It can be exacerbated by lifestyle. But overall, it's a normal process. And um, part of the decline that we experience is because of the environments that we're forced to live in. And I don't blame designers and builders because many of them don't know. Um, also, they're busy trying to build to code and they're trying to build to address a whole host of variables. What we really need to do, like you said, is we need to educate consumers, but we need to educate everybody involved in the process. Because for example, I often will work with municipalities and one important role I have is getting the municipalities to understand that every new housing unit that's built in their community, that's built to the disabling status quo is going to cost them money. It's going to make one more unnecessarily frail person that they have to try to figure out how to accommodate. So we have to address the shame of aging. And while the anti-ageism movement rightly so says that we shouldn't be trying to um, hold on to our youth, I think to some extent it could be helpful for consumers and other decision makers to view these environmental features, to view the design components in their home and in their communities as a path to the fountain of youth in a way. Um, and not that they're going to, um, you know, not that it's gonna make them be 30 something forever, um, but that they actually have some agency. They have some choice. And the decline that they may have experienced is not their fault. You know, there are these, these very significant variables that are working against them. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. That's one of the most important things. This is not rocket science. We know how to do these things. Most of these things don't cost extra money. You just have to know and do. And one of the things that um, you spoke passionately about when we first met at that conference was the pending, or maybe it's already here, shortage of actual caregiving labor. And this idea that, you know, we kind of take for, for granted that people will work for $8 an hour to help lift people in and out of bed. And the days where that's either a sustainable job or even ethical to, to pay that much, um, that that labor pool is also shrinking 
Yes. And there's injuries in that labor pool, and that's not a livable wage being paid for that type of labor. And we're sort of making these assumptions that people will come out of the woodwork in the next uh, couple of decades and and take care of people, including ourselves, as we age. And perhaps that's not the case. So can you touch on that briefly? This is a monumental trend in our society, a demographic trend that we're already um, being hurt by, and it's only going to get worse. So what's happening is that the older adult population is growing exponentially. And at the same time, younger populations that contain potential caregivers, whether they're family members or they would be paid caregivers, are shrinking. So we're going to have increased demand for long-term care. And at the same time that the supply of that care is contracting. So in my, from my perspective, from my 30 plus years of experience and expertise, the way you balance the equation is to look at the built environment. So all of the things I talk about not only apply to the supply of housing, the housing stock in our country, to make sure that we're over 90% of older adults are aging is designed to minimize the demand for long-term care and also make the provision of care in the home much easier. But it's also um, to make environments that are um, senior living housing and facilities more enabling, enable the independence of the residents to make the demand for care, the limited staffing that's already there, limit the um, demands on them at the same time that you're thinking about how can we make the job easier for staff. I remember when I was an undergraduate and I was pursuing the gerontology minor in one of my classes, we were studying the workforce and all the issues that we talked about then hold true today. Underpaying this population, not supporting their needs. And I really call on um, all of those in positions to employ um, the home health aides, certified nursing assistants, um, direct care workers, anyone who can make a decision about their salary, we need to pay these people a living wage. It's not just the minimum wage. It's not just more than the minimum wage. It's not just more than your competitors. There's data on what is the living wage in your region, and we need to pay these people that wage. We also need to go a few steps further. We need to recognize, okay, a lot of these providers, these care, the direct care providers have children or grandchildren they're responsible for. I can't tell you how many times I've heard discussions. I've even written issue briefs about this, but 
having childcare on site and like what an amazing thing that would be. It would make it easier for the aides. It would um, bring the life of children into the facility, allow for intergenerational programming. Um, why is that not more frequently done? Other issues too are things like affordable housing. Our nation is in a crisis. We significantly lack affordable housing. Well, why don't we look at returning to older models of workforce housing? Um, you could provide housing on site. You could provide housing within a community. And lastly, to tie this all together, um, I've developed an initiative for my firm called Tackling the Caregiving Crisis by Design. And one of the components is helping communities, helping regions address this issue because both municipalities and regional healthcare systems are impacted by the number of frail people within their communities. In addition, they are at the mercy at the number and availability of direct care workers to provide care. And they need to really come together. Um, sometimes it's public-private partnerships, sometimes it's public-public partnerships to address this um, because we're in a period now where we are moving from, um, I think it in 2010, it was, there was approximate, there were approximately seven potential caregivers for every one um, person who needed care. Um, we're at about one in five now, and within 10 years or so, it'll be less than three potential caregivers for every one person who needs care. So we need to make these changes. We need to also incentivize um, or provide uh, funding programs for home modifications, which supports the crucial work that you do. And we also need to change our building and zoning codes to stop replicating the production of disabling and discriminatory housing. And um, before uh, we wrap up here, can you tell people how to get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out to you or learn more? Sure. Um, they People can visit my website. My firm is called Silver to Gold Strategic Consulting. And my website is www.silver2goldstrategies.com. And that two in the web address is spelled T-O silver to gold, uh, because our mission is to turn the silver of aging to gold for everyone involved. Well, I don't think we could have had a better note to end this awesome interview. Thank you so much for bringing all of your knowledge and expertise to our audience here. I think that was a very fascinating topic. I still have a massive design crush on you. Um, so I'd like to keep following what you're doing. And I just appreciate you being open. For anybody who's wondering, yes, I am going to have Esther back. Completely different conversation about her experience with as being a caregiver for her mom. Um, so we'll take it from a totally different perspective. I think that'll actually add some depth to some of the things you've talked about here. So Esther, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rebecca. And I would love to support your important work.
thank you for having me. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I am here to let you know I can be found on RebeccaTapiaMD.com. You can come over there to learn about my new course launching this summer, dealing with mindset for aging parents, getting prepared, all the good stuff, sharing my opinions and life lessons. Uh, Also could just join my email list so I can share more about my thoughts about these podcasts and more insights there. Thank you so much for being here.